You are listening to the Necropolis Podcast, which is brought to you by Jason from Goatcraft and Shelly from HeatMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Welcome to Necropolis. We are back in action today. Um, after a few episodes of slaughtering sacred cows and other things of that nature, we decided to go to the ultimate sacred cow, which is that legacy band um, that goes all the way far back as the Beatles to... Uh, metal in general, where a lot of the the main bands who stay in the headlines are bands from late seventies, eighties, and early nineties who still take up the bulk of the news content. Like if you look at blabbermouth.com, you'll definitely see there's a great graying going on there. And uh, I would say like the average age of uh, someone featured on that website, as well as other publications and such, uh, they're well over the age of fifty. And uh, especially at rock music, you have like people literally in their 70s um, still up there on stage playing useful music. You know, they're not allowing fresh blood to really come in. Um, or if the fresh blood does come in, it has to be like derivative of their style somewhat. And um, But anyway, I figured today it would be a really good opportunity to discuss that legacy band. And uh, the the pros and cons, uh, obviously more cons than pros, I believe. But uh, um, I do have a wide range of guests today. I do have uh, the co-host Shelly, who is from HateMeditations.com and Metal Legion Magazine. Thank you, Shelly, for returning. Thank you. Good to be here. I'm gunning for blood today. <laughs> yep. Let's cut down to the bone. And we do have Tyler. Tyler is still uh, in, I guess, the Mediterranean Hopefully it was not attacked by any orcas. No orca attacks. Uh, we're doing just fine. But yeah, glad to join for today. Yes, sir. And do we do have a special dissident guest on today. We do have the one, uh, Keith Preston, who is a well-known anarchist. Um, he's behind the website attackthesystem.com, as well as a book of the same name. And I... I I recently picked up one of his books. I haven't read it yet. It's called The Failure of Anarchism, where it looks like he's kind of criticizing other anarchists for essentially losing the anarchist spirit, I should say. Um, but, of course, he can elaborate on that much more. Thank you for joining today, Keith. Good to be here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, Legacy Band's still staying relevant today and taking up most of the headlines I think that's like a, a symptom of like bourgeois capitalism, essentially, uh, especially if you look at uh, the bands that Keith listened to when he was growing up, which uh, were the, the boomer crop of bands. Um, and as well as, you know, metal, there's a lot of uh, bands that still stay in the headlines, but they really haven't put out any good material in the past 20, 30, 40 years. So they're, they're clogging up the, the industry just releasing derivative album after derivative album and they're really clenching on to staying relevant you know well past their prime in a lot of instances it's very embarrassing to see them up on stage especially like motley crew and other bands like that where they used to play like glam metal and now they're all bloated and old and trying to be sexy up on stage and it's really really sad and to an extent that you know like morbid angel they you know banned from the 80s and early 90s that was their peak they're still touring around and they look like shells of their former selves so Shelly what are your thoughts on these legacy bands um well just general general sort of thinking to sort of ease us into the topic it's kind of like a big 
company where you've got lots of aging employees who are kind of holding out for retirement and it means that no one no one else can advance up the ladder in terms of their career and they can't recruit new people because you have all of these people in the late 50s early 60s kind of clogging up the uh, the recruitment chain that's a like really cold clinical way of putting it but the problem with the legacy bands is we're not here to say oh they were never that good anyway um it's more the fact that they've had their time and um they've had their moment in the sun and i appreciate the fact that as a younger fan it has given me the opportunity to see some of these bands that i was too young or not born at the time that they were sort of at their prime but at the same time the joke's kind of wearing thin at this point and not just in terms of them blocking the fact that other younger bands can you know take the stage and you know take the reins as it were but also the fact it's not good for them. Some of them are, are too old to be traveling the world and doing what they do on stage. And you can start to see it, see the cracks appearing. I mean, before we came on, we mentioned Ozzy Osbourne, who's a great example of this, but also the likes of uh, Phil Collins. Uh, Genesis recently did a reunion tour and he couldn't drum for most of the set. He had to get his son to do it because he's too old and kind of seeing him on stage, it felt like just quite, quite sad in a way. And the fact that the crowd is there kind of, I know that, you know, they want to see their favorite bands and cheer them on and stuff. But at the same time, it's like, no, these people, these people deserve a rest. They're, they're getting on. They need to, like, sit down for a bit, <laughs> like, give them a break. And maybe maybe you go home and sort of check out some new music. Like, I know that it sometimes feels like there's a lot of shit out there, but there is good new music being made. You just have to make the effort to go and find it. And we're still kind of haunted by the legacy of these huge names that are almost like, as ubiquitous as brands like Coca-Cola or McDonald's at this point. Um, so yeah, it's a kind of, it's a two way thing where the fans buy into it and kind of sustain it, but also, yeah, the, the bands and their, you know, their representation, their labels or their PR people or whatever, they also kind of feed the flames as well of just making us repeat the same, the same stuff over and over again oh it's the anniversary of this album it's the anniversary of this date it's the anniversary of this tour we'll do another one and it just it never ends like judas priest for example seems to have been on a 20 year long farewell tour and it's like i love judas priest but stop stop <laughs> you've done enough yeah can you believe a covenant though by morbid angel is 30 years old this year it's crazy to Whew, yeah you know, it's crazy <laughs> to think it's like not only can that album drink, you know, it has a mortgage. <laughs> it has a 401k. Um, so, uh, Keith, what are your general thoughts on uh, these legacy bands clogging up the the zeitgeist of uh, society as a whole? Well, there's a lot of interesting things about that. You know, I'm, I was born in the 60s, and not coincidentally, the music that I'm most familiar with is from roughly the mid-1960s, which is like the British invasion, the Beatles and the Stones and all that, up through maybe the early to mid-90s, like the first wave of grunge bands, you know, Nirvana and Alice in Chains, and then some of the alternative-derived bands from that time period, like, you know, Marilyn Manson or, or Nine Inch Nails or Rob Zombie. And I could I know very little about music after that, you know, so that definitely reflects my age. Um, but I do think it's really interesting how all of these classic rock uh, performers from the 60s and 70s and 80s are still out there in many instances, still trying to tour, you know, to the point that 
some of them look like they don't have a breath left in them, and yet they're trying to tour. You know, like I saw recently where Aerosmith is finally going to do their um, reunion tour. I mean, no, their I guess it's their farewell tour supposedly. And I saw a picture of those guys because I saw Aerosmith in concert a number of times in the like seventies or eighties somewhere in there. And you know, they they they're all about seventy five now, and some of them look like they probably have to have someone hold their hand as they're walking up the steps to the stage so that they don't fall over and get a broken hip or something. I mean, it's it's pretty pitiful, you know. Um, I saw a video a while back of uh, one of the last performances of Dusty Hill, who was the bass player in ZZ Top, and he was continuing to perform up until about three weeks before he died. And he was in such bad health, he was sitting on an amp playing his bass parts during the show. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's so some of these folks really do play until they're, you know, they're on their last breath. I know um, the the one remaining original member of Leonard Skinner died recently, which was uh, Gary Rosington. And they had him out there playing until, you know, up, up until about the day he died. I think he it got to the point where he'd only come out for a few songs and, there was a substitute for the rest of the show. And what I think is going on behind all of this is that these bands, these legacy acts are all brands. You know, they're not bands, they're brands. And behind a lot of these groups, you have a lot of, you know, um, business interests that are still raking it in uh, when it comes to these tours. Um, you know, for example, um, the... Um, as I mentioned Leonard Skinner, I, I know that some of these surviving estates of the, all the, de the deceased members, they're still making a, a ton of profit from having this troop, what amounts to a tribute band, go out there and tour as Leonard Skinner. Um, and it seems to be a lot of these acts, that's really what's happening. And they're a brand and, and the, you know, whoever has ownership in them uh, still uh, is able to make a pretty good profit from these tours. Um, you know, I mean, there are some there are some legacy acts that don't have any original members, and what the way it works is that the the rights to the brand name is owned by someone somewhere. It may be an original member who's retired. It may be the relatives of a deceased former member. It may be an ex manager or or somebody somewhere. But they'll actually put a band on the road under that band's name, and it's just a tribute band. Uh, uh, one example is uh, um, Blackfoot. Blackfoot doesn't have any original members, but the, one of the original members, Ricky Medlock, he actually owns it. So he puts a tribute band out on the road under the Blackfoot name, and he makes the profit as the owner of the company. And meanwhile, he's a, 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 a member of the tribute band version of Leonard Skinner. Uh, and there's a lot of groups that function that way. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just become a brand and it's a big industry. I mean, they make a lot of money doing that. For instance, there's a um, near where I live, there's a theater that features a lot of these types of acts. And the interior of these, this place is not a club. It's a theater. It's like a movie theater in the interior. But virtually every act they feature at this place is either some 70 year old former rock star or a tribute to some classic band. Like I'm looking at the website for this, this place right now. And as far as stuff they have coming up, they have Dave Mason coming up. He was, I think, in, in one of the old versions of Fleetwood Mac from the 60s or something. They have a, a John Prine tribute band coming up. They have a Doors tribute band. They have a Meatloaf tribute coming up. 
they have a Motley Crue tribute. They have uh, something about Motown. They have uh, the Jefferson Starship. You know, they're all probably 80-something now. The, this are the ones that are still alive. They're still out there. Uh, you know, they, they've got a Journey tribute. Uh, they have a former member of the police group, uh, a Grateful Dead tribute, a uh, Metallica tribute, a Def Leppard tribute. Uh, Jimmy Vaughn, who's the younger brother of Stevie Ray Vaughn, he's probably in his now, I would guess, not older. Uh, you know, there's another Journey tribute. Uh, uh, there's a former lead singer of Queen's Right, a Johnny Cash tribute, a Rush tribute. Um, you know, these are just shows that are coming up in the next few months at this place. Roger McGuinn, he was in The Birds like way back in the mid-60s. Uh, Ronnie McDowell, he's an Elvis impersonator that's been around since Elvis was still alive. Um, so, you know, this is still a big business, and, and whoever's behind this on the business end is still making a lot of money. Would you say in like the next five to ten years that – all those projects and bands and tributes that you just mentioned would perhaps earn a better living if they toured around at nursing homes? Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Um, well, what's happening is that a lot of these groups, as a lot of these groups are dying off or the members are too old to perform anymore, they're actually putting together these licensed tribute bands. Like there's a version of that uh, for the Allman Brothers now, um, you know, it, it's basically a young, a bunch of young, younger people playing the Allman Brothers music. And they even changed some of the arrangements of the music to make it sound more contemporary. But it, apparently it's actually owned by the, the estates of the, you know, the, well, Greg Allman died and, you know, the Allman, and, and Dwayne Allman died decades ago. So whoever still owns the rights to the Allman Brothers band, uh, brand name, um, they've got this official tribute that's out there, you know, pretending to be the Allman Brothers, essentially. Well, Kiss said that. Kiss said, I think they're supposedly doing their last tour this year, but they've even talked about um, having uh, an all-new version of Kiss and putting that out as the official Kiss, all, you know, a new generation of younger members. That is freaking frightening. Um, just to kind of imagine... You know, KISS, but not KISS members at all, just a brand, like you said. And it's kind of scary to think about, you know, uh, we had mentioned Napalm Death doesn't have any original members anymore. You know, Napalm Death was getting going in the uh, 80s and 90s and got really big. But I'm kind of imagining them, too. It's like eventually they, the the members that are in the band now, they may... Uh, be replaced by other members and napalm death could be one of those bands that just keeps on going for a few hundred years you know playing protests leftist music so it's kind of scary uh tyler uh what are your thoughts on what was just discussed uh so yeah what keith had to say was really interesting that was all stuff that i learned for the first time when reading about the dispute with mick mars with motley crew because the manner in which they were discussing that dispute, it really sounded more like Motley Crue was a brand or an estate than it was a uh, band. They talked about like rights and uh, everything. Um, and they, and it was really interesting to hear them discuss that. Um, hey, uh, I actually, can somebody else take over for me real quick? I need to step away for a moment. Yeah, no problem. Uh, Shelley, do you have any retorts to what was just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think the way to understand it as brands is actually really important here um, because it's not it's not just about like um, people experiencing um, the music in a certain way. It's it's all about what's the official version. And as Keith said, you get like official quote unquote tributes and stuff. And the the apex of this for me was after the death of Ronnie James Dio when they organized a tour with his hologram. And that was like a weird concoction of um, immersive like theater experience. Say if you went to go to the cinema and watch like a, a recording of a live rock show or whatever, plus the band itself, who um, I'm assuming was part, at least some of the members were parts of Ronnie James Dio's actual band. And then this weird sort of ghostly hologram of the guy himself who wasn't long dead at the time as well. And that kind of, as a, as a, as a symbol of what we're discussing, you couldn't have kind of put it more perfectly as like, even after these people's deaths, if it's not some new members that are kind of officially recruited by whoever owns the band, but also um, you can just create holograms. And I think not that this is a rock act, but I think ABBA did a very similar thing. Um, and it's it's almost like what are you what are you into music for? Because at this point, what we're discussing is almost it feels more like the theme park end, the Disneyland end of music fandom than it does the kind of music fandom that we're used to. You know, supporting local bands, discovering new shit online, like buying up underground stuff, trading ideas, discussing the music in depth. These are people that just want to go for an experience, for an outing, for a day trip to Disneyland to experience the Kiss show or the Black Sabbath show or the Dio show. And that is just complete a complete anathema to the way that I I understand like how I how I exercise my fan of like, you know, serious uh, serious music or what I what I how I try to exercise it anyway. It's just completely um completely alien to the way that I would I would, you know, want to express my my fandom for what I think is you know, interesting and and exciting music. Um, but I'll, I'll hand back to Tyler now because I think you're ready to chime in. Yeah, and actually, it was uh, pretty closely related to what you're talking about because we're talking about like major legacy bands, right? And I think this relates to them as well, but also coming at it from a perspective of someone who mostly listens to what could be roughly termed underground music. I feel like you also see a phenomenon of what you could call legacy genres, where you see old school death metal revival, um, 80s thrash metal revival. And uh, the question that I had is that, Shelly, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, and I would like to hear Keith's thought, thoughts on this too, because I think it relates also to the major bands, uh, about how there's plenty of new music out there to check out. And I'm not contesting that in the least. I found several new bands over the past couple of years that I thought were pretty good. You know, um, So I would say... My question is, is it the case that there is not enough good music of quality that's new, that's coming out to keep people away from wanting to go back to the glory days of an earlier musician or an earlier band, or in some cases, like I just mentioned, an earlier genre? Or is it something like, because of the internet, um, you don't have that funneling effect that you had in past times where like, a new genre or a musical movement would come out, not even necessarily an underground one like death metal, but even something like Motown, 
where you were only going to get your information from music from a limited number of sources. So most artists would follow that movement. And so it became, well, to repeat myself, a movement with all the excitement, like, oh, a new movement is afoot that also gets listeners excited about something new and exciting. Well, in the internet days, you don't have that movement effect as much because you don't have to follow the leader at least in the same ways like you did then. You have way more sources of information. You can go and get into all sorts of niche interests and decide to combine funk and Motown and death metal and dubstep all into one genre if you want to, and there'll be some audience for it on the internet. So there's none of that gestalt that can create those movements that get people really excited. And that can be cool for a lot of niche audiences, but I almost wonder if people go to those legacy bands or those legacy genre movements, because without that gestalt that makes those movements for people to get excited about, they want to sort of experience, experience that excitement vicariously through an already established movement or musician or band, if that makes sense. I know that was a lot of word salad, but I hope you guys understand enough to be able to provide some interesting answers. Uh, yeah, no, it makes perfect sense to me. And I have quite a big answer to it, but I'll try and be very brief before I, I hand over to Keith. Um, I think you put your finger on it when you, you discussed the internet and the way that music is now like distributed and negotiated via social media in that anyone who is interested in music and has the talent to make it can do it far easier than they could do 30 odd years ago. They can also, they also have access to the entire body of like post second world war music at their fingertips to, to draw influence from. Um, so just to sort of give some anecdotal kind of information to sort of make clear what I mean. I, I, grew up or I, I became interested in alternative music in the early 2000s and this might sound like a cliche but there was a real sense that I had sort of missed history because in the early 2000s there there was music around there was things floating around there was the tail end of new metal lucky me um there was um the fledgling emo scene lucky me um there was you know budgeting deathcore lucky me so I got into metal quite quickly, but again, it was very much like the glory days of metal were long gone. And I was sort of looking back with nostalgia for, you know, periods that I never experienced. And I think all metalheads go through this. Oh, I wish I was around in 1992. Oh, I wish I was around in the mid eighties and I could have experienced some of these bands in their prime. And as I got older, I really appreciated some of these bands reforming or doing one last tour. Cause I thought, well, I can, I can experience these bands that I've obsessed over and listened to. Um, and even more recently, I've started to become very disillusioned with that because um, yeah, I sort of feel like it's blinkering us to what is actually out there. And the issue is not that there isn't great new music being made. It's that there isn't a movement that can coalesce around it because the, in the Internet has made things so atomized. People don't have those collective experiences anymore. I think it's still possible to generate them, but they, there has to be the, the will to do so. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't put a date on it and I wouldn't put it all down to the Internet. There are some other factors involved as well. But from, say, you know, the birth of rock and roll back in the 50s through to maybe the mid 1990s, roughly speaking, was like the age of the rock star. And all of these other underground genres are kind of folded within that. Uh, but after that period, you get this this kind of weird entropic flux where nothing really stuff is still happening but nothing seems to be happening in in the way as you put your finger on tyler with 
certain movements like really grasping there was no like 1977 london punk moment or whatever there was just kind of a, a lots of very specific subgenres and people messing around with like genre alchemy and so on um so i can see the attraction of all of these old bands coming together again and everyone rallying around the brand but equally i think I think it's time to to put it to bed. I mean, I know it won't be because we've already discussed the fact that the financial incentive is too strong, but philosophically, we need to put it to bed. <laughs> well, uh, before we repose the question to Keith that Tyler had brought up about five minutes ago, um, but uh, speaking about like Kiss and you know bands that are going to put together their own tribute, and in, in Extreme Metal, there are some quote-unquote tribute bands, like there's a spinoff of Venom where there's Venom Inc., and then there's uh entombed ad that went around a while which had one other original guy from entombed he did his offshoot of that and then you have i am morbid with david vincent um running around playing i am Mor you know, morbid angel songs um so well i saw nocturnus as well i think it was just mike browning and the rest of the band were all i mean it's great because i i loved watching mike browning play nocturnus and they played the key all the way through but that was just the other members were all just you know not in the original lineup Correct. I used to play with them. That's why I didn't bring them up. But uh, um, <laughs> sorry, Pantera <laughs> sorry, reunion. <mate>. Yeah, Pantera <laughs> reunion is another one. And then uh, I think Death has one called Left to Die or something like that. That's it's doing touring. Yeah, Death. All they have two tributes. They have two tributes. But yeah, I think I've seen uh, one of them. Uh, Tyler had posed a question to Keith if there was a, a lack of like good. Uh, content being created by other bands, which is why the legacy bands just stayed in the spotlight, essentially. Keith, did you see anything like that happening where, you know, there was like the, the established bands which stayed in the spotlight and uh, uh, other bands just weren't putting out as good of a material on um, that's why they never got as big? Well, there's a lot of aspects to that. I think one thing about the legacy bands is that in, the, in terms of the branding, what those have now become is something kind of like a musical or something like the film franchises. Like, think about how many Star Wars film franchises there have been, films, you know, that there have been under the Star Wars franchise or Star Trek, you know, that some of those are Batman. Um, or think about the musicals that keep getting performed over and over again, you know, with totally different cast, you know, something like, West Side Story or Hair or some of the some of the Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff that's you know considered classic uh, that they still perform even though you know people who were the original versions may be deceased by now um, and I think a lot of these legacy rock acts are are kind of like that it's it, you know it's they're more like these franchises that you see in in film or in musicals um, as an example. Um, I, a few years ago, I was talking to uh, a young woman in her early 20s who said Journey was one of her favorite bands. And I'm like, well, you know, the original singer from Journey hasn't performed with them for over 30 years. And she's like, oh, yeah, but the new guy's good, though. He sounds just like like it didn't matter to her. You know, uh, I, I was talking to someone else about that same age once who said that their one of their favorite bands was Foreigner. And I'm like, you know, those guys are all uh, just replacements, you know, the the. There's only one guy who's still uh, around, and he from the original. He he's only with them some of the time, and, and they were like, "Oh yeah, that guy is so old. Yeah, he's he's only there sometime because he's eighty or something." But uh, but again, it was the brand that mattered to them. It wasn't the the performers. 
And, um, but I, so I think that's the appeal that a lot of this legacy rock stuff has to younger people. I think it's more just the brand. Um, you know, they don't care about who was in the original, but as far as the, the, why these groups continue to endure as opposed to something new coming along and replacing them, I think a lot of it has to do with the structure of the music business and the way the structure of the music business has changed over time. Because back in the 60s and 70s, and even into the 80s, to get a recording contract on a major label, you had to be good. I mean, in the sense that you typically, you had already developed your craft uh, as, a, as an act in clubs and bars and stuff like that before you got a rec recording contract. And then, you know, only, only the what record companies A&R guys thought were the best got recording contracts in the first place. Uh, and then they would try to nurture an artist. Whereas, you know, if you, you, you like, if, if the first album didn't do that well, they'd say, okay, let's do another album and see how that goes. And usually they give it a few albums to see how well the, the, the artist developed and whether the artist started to develop a following. Um, and now they don't do that. You know, now it's basically, uh, really you don't even have a music industry anymore because, uh, you know the way the way bands make their their money today is through touring and through merch and through things like you know live streaming and you know internet downloads. So the, the whole you don't really have the record the big record companies anymore that put a lot of money into developing and cultivating artists over time. You know, like I know a band that I used to be into uh, back in the late seventies that few people a day have ever heard of was a band called Angel. And they were kind of a glam rock band that was on the same label as Kiss, but they were kind of like the good guy Kiss. They dressed all in white and that kind of stuff, whereas Kiss had this darker leather image, at least early on before they became a cartoon band. But uh, but Angel, they, in their live productions, they would actually have holograms where it made it look like the the band is disappearing on the stage, you know, Um and the record companies would put money into bands and tours and stuff like that because that's how they were selling the band. Nowadays, you don't really have that kind of support for new acts. Uh, and, and plus, with the Internet, it's, it's more of a case of, you know, I mean, like you can go on YouTube today and find a group of 17-year-old Korean kids doing covers of classic rock songs that just blow away the original versions. You know, I mean, I've, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen videos on YouTube of some you know, young woman who looks to be about 25 and, you know, she's sitting there in a bikini playing Led Zeppelin and just blowing away Jimmy Page, you know, and it's obviously that's her, you know, that's her, um, her grift or whatever. That's how she's making money on YouTube. Um, so I think the structure of the, of the business is a big part of that. You don't really have anybody out there that has a business incentive to cultivate and nurture new acts. Uh, you know, even when a new act would get signed, like even as late as say the uh, as early as say the '90s, the late '90s, if you had a new band that got signed to a record label, if their first album didn't take off, they drop them, and then they you know go on to somebody else. No effort to really uh, cultivate um, artists, and that seems to be where it is now. I mean, you don't really even have a music industry. Um, you. If you go to a rock festival today, the average age of the headline performers is probably something like 60 something, you know, it's uh, and uh, you, I mean, you do have some younger bands that are kind of like a uh, a throwback to some of the older rock style. You've got Greta Van Fleet, for example, that's one example.
But uh, there used to be a group called Wolf Mother that was kind of in that genre. But uh, yeah, so I, I think a lot of it just has to do with changes in the business, you know, the way the business is set up. The internet really changed the the uh, the music business. It basically put the record companies out of business. Well, the, the, yeah, there still are record labels. Um, and record labels, especially in extreme metal, still really exist. There's Metal Blade, Century Media, Napalm Records, Houston on this, et cetera, et cetera, where there is a label boss who dictates what comes out on his label. And what is coming out on those labels is what is profitable, which means that it is derivative of other um, bands that came before. Um, so, it's, you know, in the 90s and 80s when extreme metal was big, but it's more processed nowadays. It's more processed, and the songs are actually in a rock format where there's a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the other day I was listening just out of curiosity on Spotify with a DJ on there, just giving me random things to check out, and it gave me the new Bloodbath. And I listened to his Bloodbath song. I'm like, this is literally a rock song, the way it's formatted with these choruses. The chorus repeats three times. Like, it's it's reintroduced twice. Um, and that's how rock songs are kind of developed, where there's the you know, standard format, uh, verse, chorus. Um, and that's kind of been assimilated in these bigger extreme metal bands. But in doing that, it's more akin to rock music than it's a metal. And that was a deliberate decision of them wanting to be more commercial and we look at that in extreme metals case all the best you know this is an extreme metal podcast where we've gone in depth on this topic quite a bit the the best extreme metal usually happened when it wasn't on a major record label or anything like that yes covenant did come out on a big label um that was probably a, a fluke um more than anything else uh, it was probably a record label seeing how popular death metal become and put out a death metal album that performed really well but after that there was a downward trajectory where the labels like the major major labels ditched that but even today there's metal blade who has you know cannibal corpse and they're salaried they're salaried from the label so in addition to you know making money from merch and touring that record labels paying them salaries every year just to keep them on that label so even in metal like extreme metal which is not that profitable and i said this before on online that it's some of these legacy bands like that want to just you know make money from music they would have a better opportunity doing edm because there's way more money in edm electronic dance music than there is in extreme metal but to kind of get back to the industry, the industry is still there in extreme metal, and there are label heads who dictate everything. And um, yes, there there's an issue with profits nowadays, especially with physical media dying out. But those labels still exist, and they're they're still bringing in revenue um, from Bandcamp and Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, <clears throat> and all I believe for metal to re regain its gravitas and its viciousness. That really needs to be back into the Wild West, away from the record labels, away from the commercialization of it, where we we cast all these bands like Bloodbath who create rock song, you know, rock structured metal songs, and just get into like the the bands that you know are really developing their own style and their own narrative structure instead of just keeping it safe and what's profitable. Shelly, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I believe uh, Tyler wanted to chime in. I do have some thoughts, so I'll, I'll come next. 
Uh, yeah, I was just going to uh, recount my experience with like underground record uh, metal record labels because I, I'm sure it's a different case with things like uh, Metal Blade. Um, but as far as like the newer record labels, metal record labels um, that are underground that are fairly big for big for where they are in the metal scene, I should say, maybe not anything compared to Metal Blade. But big for where they are in the metal scene, I'm talking about like Everlasting Spew and Sentient Ruin. Sorry to drop names. Um, I'm not even really saying anything that critical of them. Uh, I don't actually know if this is the way they operate. There's other smaller record labels that are comparable that operate this way, I know for a fact. Um, they don't do important uh, contracts really at all anymore. A lot of them, like my, my best, one of my best friends recorded a solo like death doom metal project. And he went shopping around for record labels, sent out the demo to some record labels saying, hey, would you like to release this? And basically, when he finally got offers, this is the way it was explained to them, to him. Our social media presence has more weight than yours because nobody knows who you are. But a lot of people know who we are from albums that we've released that various groups have liked. So basically, the benefit of being released on with your album listed on our roster which is pretty much all that's going to happen through us releasing your record so to speak releasing your record uh is that more people will see it than if you try to advertise it on your own um so we will want to make some profit off of that by printing some physical media like cds or tape cassettes or what have you uh and basically we're going to run about 500 of them we're going to sell about 400 of them or 450 or whatever. And we're going to give you like 50 to a hundred that you can keep no charge. Uh, you don't have to pay for them and you can sell them through your own means or you can give them away or whatever the hell it is you want to do with them. But yeah, that's the extent of our deal, so to speak. And that's like, I guess, really common for underground metal nowadays is like that kind of thing. Um, yeah, because of, I have a worse anecdote than that, but um, yeah, I'm not talking about labels that small, but yes, they're even with labels that are that small, they still have a boss a label head who dictates what they're wanting to release. And it could be their specific flavor in the metal scene that they release, like uh, Everlasting Spew tends to release a lot of uh, like throwback bands, like there's that Carcass clone that came out a while back and things of that nature, but I was talking more about the big bands, but even those little little uh, uh, record labels, I mean, uh, even the smaller ones, they still um, dictate what gets out there into the wild. And I think we need a completely different platform than having your music held hostage by a record label. And not to name names or anything, I've had a situation where I didn't sign a record label contract and the, the label put it out. I didn't even get one copy of my, my album. I had to buy it myself. Um, and I got no money. That's awful. Yeah. And uh, uh, so there, there are situations like that where you're just going to, you know, accept life as it is. And they realize like, well, these people aren't turning that much money on your music. Therefore, they're trying to gain as much as possible by not giving you any compensation. But um, when, when it comes to like the bigger record labels and, of what they're signing um because what you're discussing about everlasting spew they're really going to like the minority of uh, extreme metal where you have your diehards who are into you know specific forms of like 80s and 90s extreme metal whereas these label heads like with the big labels they're wanting the more commercial side of metal and the thing about that is 
with that, where there there is an opportunity to make money, because you see Cannibal Corpse, you know, Metal Blade being salaried, there's going to be a thousand Cannibal Corpse clones thinking that if they play in that specific style that's easily digestible, that is ripe for consu- consumption, mass consumption, that they can turn a profit as well. I, I played with a band back when I was uh, 19, and they only sent the demo to Metal Blade. That's because they wanted to make it, quote-unquote, and that was, and of course, they didn't get signed by Metal Blade. Never, never tried for another record label. It's just it's, it's a shitty mindset where I think metal needs to go back and just be like the Wild West. I think it needs to be communal. Um, like you look at the Norwegian black metal scene before that exploded, that was communal. It was all around uh, Euronymous and uh, the zeitgeist of refusing to play death metal and wanting to be more extreme. And less fun and more satanic. That's like. Uh, sorry, Jason. Am I all right to come in? Yes. Uh, yeah, just to, to come off on that. Like, I don't. I don't think. I wouldn't pine for the days when major labels held sway over what got big or what didn't. Uh, but there is something to what Keith mentioned earlier in terms of the fact that they had financial clout to invest in certain artists and basically nurture certain artists so that they could, you know, hone their craft and create the identity that they did, which is why they created these bands that turned into brands, but they became so resonant with with so, so many people. Um, and there's there's... There's something to the idea that nowadays labels don't serve that purpose, not just because they're, they're smaller and there's no money involved, but it's because any any guy can set up a label in their bedroom with, as long as they've got a you know a fairly decent broadband connection and um, they have the sort of will and ability to just you know do some shilling. Uh, and anyone can do that with a band. They can do their own promotion. They can do their own distribution. They can try and gain the social media following. And there's there was also, as well as like labels, there's, you know, there's PR companies. There's people whose job it is to literally shepherd musicians around from tours to various interviews with magazines and things like that, who are, again, the sort of, these sort of middle managers of the music industry that are, in this day and age, completely superfluous because... We have direct access to artists through their through their social media profiles and stuff. So, to some extent, I can I can see the value in generating a kind of community around a record label. If someone wants to push a particular style of, and not just metal, but this could work for any music scene. If someone wants to push a particular style from that music scene through their label, then that certainly has a place. But it needs to be very clear that it's not. A, a label in the traditional sense in that they're not going to front the money for the recording. Um, they're not going to, um, you know, try and nurture the band or come back or have any kind of involvement in the creative process. Some might say that's a good thing as well. They're just going to use their social media clout, maybe front the money to, you know, do a run of 500 CDs and a few records or whatever. Um, and, you know, call it a day and then you know it'll be the next cycle of releases and so on but that that isn't what a tradition that's not the traditional idea of what a label was so i am kind of in favor of what you're saying jason in terms of going back to this like anarchic kind of structure where you know i was thinking specifically of like tape trading in the 80s where it was very much word of mouth 
got bands around and yeah some bands started to gain more headway because but you would know that it was kind of quality control because the people that are ex- exchanging the, this music and engaging with it actually kind of know what they're talking about because they engage with it all the time so the bands that gain clout within that scene you know that they might actually have something to them beyond over and above some other bands and i think we tend to forget that a lot of these legacy bands they're just the ones that made it in terms of the collective memory like for every like motorhead or whatever or for every venom for every Judas priest leonard skinner any name any classic rock or metal band there was a horde of like imitator bands and every label would try and invest in their own little version of kiss or whatever um and you know none of them made it and none of, we don't remember any of them because they didn't make it uh but that kind of follow the leader attitude was pervasive you know in the pre-internet days as well i think just now we're much more we're much better placed to kind of spot it when it happens but yeah it it does mean that there's no longer that kind of what's the word uh there's no longer that kind of collective uh memory around particular acts or whatever yeah we're definitely experiencing uh the death of the rock star literally because they're so old now and they are starting to croak and we do have instances where there are bands with no original members anymore that are essentially tributes. And, you know, with that, over time, those tribute bands are not going to endure as well as the original band did. Um, Keith, where do you see, uh, I know you've been kind of disconnected from the music scene since the 90s. Um, Just like in theory, like in the abstract, where do you see, do you see like, I know you're an anarchist where you're against like, you know, your website's called Attack the System, to say it bluntly and crassly. Um, do you want to attack the, the music industry and just let it just be a complete wild west where, you know, all these, you know, many uh, different musical communities have their own little microcosm and then they, they support each other within those microcosms and eventually something worthwhile may come of it. Like the Norwegian black metal seems a good a very, very good example of that, Keith. Yeah, well, when you the, the Wild West model is how the rock music industry really developed. Uh, if you go back and you look at how the industry developed in the 60s and, and 70s, that's how it was. Uh, you know, in the 60s, a lot of concert promoters were basically drug dealers. Um, the uh, In the 70s, a lot of the, the record labels were basically just one big party. Here's an illustration of, of what I mean. Uh, there's a movie that came out recently called Spinning Gold, uh, and it's the story of Neil Bogart, who was the president of, of uh, Casablanca Records in the 70s. And Casablanca was the largest independent label in the, in the 70s. And the first act that they ever signed was Kiss. And they also... Uh, were the ones that discovered Donna Summer, the Village People, a number of big disco acts. So, and they also had Gladys Knight and the Pimps and the Isley Brothers, some soul type of acts on their label at one point. So, Casablanca was a very successful, some of the biggest artists in the 70s on the label. But the movie is really interesting because it's written by Neil Bogart's son and he tells the story of Casablanca. They had a very shoot from the hip type of approach to business, you know, like, you know, they, they were constantly struggling financially because they were over-investing, you know, uh, from a point of view of financial frugal, frugality there, they were over-investing in particular acts 
like KISS operated at a loss for several years uh, before they ever turned a profit on any of their albums and that kind of thing. Um, and you, you had record companies and, and management companies and promoters and just the business generally back in those days that were willing to do things like that. Um, the, you saw that to some degree with punk, like in the, in the 80s, the independent labels, the punk-oriented independent labels started to develop because the major labels didn't want anything to do with punk because punk didn't sell, you know, you, you didn't get gold albums from punk. So you, the punk scene would create their own record labels. And then out of that came the post-punk and alternative and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's really how the whole grunge explosion and, and then the alternative rock explosion started in the 90s, because a lot of that stuff got started in the 80s. Um, you know, in fact, a lot of those bands that got to be big name bands in the, in the 90s actually had their start in the in the 80s being on independent labels and stuff like that. You know, groups like Nirvana, um, Soundgarden, uh, James Addiction, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so in the 80s, the punk and alternative scene was sort of continuing what the, you know, the classic rock had been doing in the 60s and 70s. Um, so that, I think, is, the, the benefit of that model, I think, is that it, it, it encouraged a lot of innovation and experimentation and stuff like that, uh, whereas, you know, corporate rock was always just about playing it safe. Well, can we get a hit from this? No, okay, we'll forget it, you know, or that this that we turn uh, you know a, a, a decent profit margin on this artist's last album no well then drop them um you know i i, I and i think so i think that really to have a good music scene you've got to have that kind of business model you've got to have this kind of wild west business model uh because you've got to be able to nurture different approaches and see what takes off see what becomes popular um and you, I don't really see a lot of that today. You know, I, I, I see, I mean, I don't know much about the music business as it is today, but from what I can tell, it's just about these singers that, you know, they just want to be able to do a live stream that's going to draw, you know, 3 million views or something like that. Um, you know, you, you don't really have popular rock acts today, except for these legacy groups that do these, you know, tours for, for boomers and Gen Xers, you know, like who are your big, pop music superstars now i mean it's you've got this country pop stuff which really isn't even country you know you've got the female singers like taylor swift and, and all that stuff it's and really you, like rap and hip-hop that's really yeah and, and and you've got i was going to say rap and hip-hop so those are really the big styles now you know and rock hasn't really been that big of a thing for about 20 years well so, i was sorry to interrupt but this is a rather depressing thought i think the last big rock genre or the rock movement was new metal. And that was, that kind of died a death in the early 2000s. I think after that, you're right. Like hip hop and R and B has been the real money, money maker in terms of the music industry. Even in those kind of genres though, like more recently, you don't see big names in hip hop and rap like you did back in the early 2000s. Like you don't have a 50 cents name blared all over the place or uh usher's name blared all over the place it's like 15 weird names that you've never heard of who have released like the singles for this year and then next year nobody remembers those 15 names and there's a new 15 names yeah, yeah i mean i don't keep tabs on rap enough to kind of comment on that but i mean 
part of, part of me also wants to say the the way that music is digested is changing as well in that we we talk about like the the infrastructure in terms of record companies but you know basically being businesses and back in the day they had enough money um and enough clout to maybe take a punt on something that they weren't necessarily sure was going to work but you know that's that's kind of like any kind of business speculation you you invest some cash and see where it takes you and as Keith mentioned as well, a lot of it <laughs> was linked to organized crime as well. Like if you look at the story behind Black Sabbath's like run of classic albums, that that was like dogged by issues with gangs in in London and the connections that um, their PR and manager guys had. But to come yeah, back that to was point, let me say that was the norm in the industry back then. Like yes, Black, yeah. Black Sabbath's management, um, the the Arden family that was that was Black Sabbath's management. They they were the British mafia. Um, that was true. I just I was just talking about Casablanca of Neil Bogart. Neil Bogart was up to his eyebrows in debt to the mob to the point that they tried to put a hit on him at one point. Um, so yeah, I mean there was a ton of organized crime involved in the music industry, and it had that's what gave it this wild west flavor. In addition to the drugs and sex and rock and roll and all that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, but that's what it takes to to develop something that's going to be unique and original, where it's not just completely corporatized. Like I'm looking at this. I be. I'm looking at oh, this I'm thing. Sorry, on the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I'm looking at this thing on the internet right now that lists the top twenty tours of last year, 2022. The biggest grossing tour was something called Bad Bunny. I don't even know what that is. Is that a band or a, or a musical or something? But the number two is Elton John, Ed Sheeran, uh, Harry Styles, Coldplay. The Rolling Stones, Red Hot Chili Pepper, Def Leppard and Motley Crue, Kenny Chesney, uh, a few other things. Lady Gaga is on here. Paul McCartney, Billie Eilish, The Eagles, Guns N' Roses, Justin Bieber, and My Chemical Romance. I mean, at least half of these are legacy acts. You know, it's uh, maybe more than that. Maybe you could almost make an argument. Yeah, you could almost make an argument that almost all of them are legacy acts. Yeah, I mean, I mean, three quarter, three quarters of these acts, or at least at least half the three quarters of these acts, uh, were around when I was say a teenager, like in the you know in the early eighties, you know, early to mid eighties. Uh, you know, Elton John, Paul McCartney, the, the Stones, the Monty Crew, Def Leppard, you know, Guns N' Roses. That's the well, you could make a case even for My Chemical Romance being a legacy act at this point. Like they they were big twenty. I was going to say ago, they're like. <laughs> They were they're over twenty years old, yeah. By yeah. by uh, standards that I heard of when I was a child, it's classic if it's over twenty. Well, well, even like Lady Gaga, yeah, Lady Gaga has been around for what, like fifteen years or something now. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that was yeah. I mean, when I was fifteen, an act that had been around for fifteen years would have been a group like the Stones. And that that would have been legacy back then, you know. It's I, re I remember the Stones going on tour for the Tattoo You tour in 1981. Everybody made a big deal about how old those guys were. You know, they were in their late 30s and early 40s. I remember Alice Cooper going on tour around 1986. This was after he sobered up and he hadn't done a tour in about five years. And my friends and I went to see him. And we were talking about, yeah, that dude is so old now. What is he now, like 38 or something? You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the idea that he would still be performing now when he's 75, is, it would have been unthinkable. 
Well, I saw him in 2009. And again, I thought, well, he's pretty old, but we've also got uh, Twisted Sister and Kiss on the same lineup. So whatever. Like, <laughs> I mean, even Justin Bieber, I mean, he was like a teeny bopper, you know, what, what is he now? Probably pushing 30 or something in age, you know, so. Yeah, but he's been around for, I mean, yeah, but you're right. Like back, like, back in the day, I'm using that term very vaguely, but festival lineups would be filled with bands that, have just exploded. They've been going for a handful of years and a label has got hold of them and they've managed to gain some traction and they're, they're on the up and up, uh, but they're still very much current. They're in their early twenties or whatever. They're sort of young and fresh. Um, but then now you look at festival lineups from sort of the late two thousands onwards, and it's unusual to see a band that's less than 15 years old. So I, I mentioned before we started the podcast, I'm currently looking at, the lineup for Hellfest, which is one of the biggest metal and rock festivals in Europe uh, for 2022. And just some of the names on here again, uh, Deep Purple, Faith No More, Nine Inch Nails, Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Alice Cooper, um, Deftones, Obituary, Sepultura, Mayhem. Like none, none of these bands are remotely new. And I think we've kind of forgotten the fact that it's it used to be really unusual to see bands that were a decade old on a, on a festival lineup for a festival that theoretically would have young people attending. But some of these, some of these festivals now appear to be kind of theme parks for, for aging rockers to take their families to. And, you know, that has its place, but I think we've forgotten that this was alternative music that was kind of edgy and dangerous and underground and was supposed to engage people in a more profound way than what this is, which is essentially Disneyland for slightly alternative people. And they'll buy the merch, they'll buy mugs, they'll buy jigsaw puzzles, they'll buy themed calendars. I mean, Kiss were kind of ahead of the curve in this, but now every one of the bands on this lineup are, are releasing their own kind of brand of duvet covers or whatever. And it does feel a bit uh, sickening in a way. I mean, we all know that you know, the promise of counterculture is always absorbed back into the capitalist system and kind of churned out as empty consumerism. We know that that happens. It's inevitable. It's just what happens in, in this system. But the nakedness of this display is sometimes a little bit obscene to my eyes. <laughs> well, you know, I used to go to rock concerts in the 70s and 80s, and it was basically a party. I mean, it was a free flow of weed and beer and, you know, people tripping on acid and, and all kinds of stuff like that. And it was rare you saw anybody over age 25 at a concert, unless it was like a, a you know, maybe in the 80s, if you went to a Jefferson Airplane reunion or something, you might see some 40-year-olds. But uh, now you go to a rock concert and the average age is about 40-something, you know, it's like uh, you see families and elderly people and little kids, you know. Um, I, I, a few months ago, I went to see Ace Freely. Uh, do one of his solo shows and the average age of the audience I guess was probably about 58 you know it was uh, <laughs> I, I saw Wasp about six months ago in a club same thing I'd say the average age there was about 45 I mean they were the the 13 year olds of 1984 you know it, it's uh yeah and, and yeah that's that's what rock is now it's more like when I was a kid country music shows were like that if you went to a country music show it was basically in all ages, you know, everybody from kids to elderly people. That's what rock is now. Yeah, I mean, the classic... Yeah, the I think that... Uh... No, on, no, sorry, I'm sorry. I was uh, just... I mean, it's a point that I kind of brought up earlier. I was just saying, I think that with young music shows or festivals, 
that are like mostly consisting of like a younger audience with uh, not so much legacy bands. It's mostly niche movements that you're going to see doing that. And I think that a lot of the times they're a lot more localized nowadays. You'll have a lot of young people talking about like, oh yeah, or lo- the Wichita hardcore scene, the uh, deathcore scene, or the, you know, um, it's like a local thing that they organize on a local level with like mostly local bands or bands within like the area of a few states or whatever your geographical divisions are where you live. Um, and it's like really niche, you know, it's like, oh, we're in the, you know, the fourth grade you know, this, you will, will play with it. Sometimes like they'll kind of overlap a little bit. Um, but I think that's where far more of the And I don't know if also the internet has something to do with that, like atomizing genres and scenes and stuff. Um, but it's become... In a way, even in the underground, more like a like a market kind of thing. Like, what kind of flavor is my flavor? All right, I pick that flavor, pick it up. If I live in a big city, there's probably a scene for it that plays at some of these weird underground venues. Maybe in somebody's basement, I'll go to those shows because it's the kind of flavor I like. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, because on the one hand, I really favor the the localization of, of music because um it means that you do get distinctive styles and you get some uh really kind of distinctive um you you get some difference in music it breaks away from the homogenization of of rock where it is just um everyone playing the same style or whatever and that kind of brings it back to how you know how i see the glory days of like extreme metal in the late 80s early 90s the different scenes around the world had very distinctive styles and you could tell them part by that but i do kind of see a point in that that sometimes feeds into treating music more as a vibe than it is a uh, you know actually going to experience the music that you might find profound in some way like for instance like i think you made a really good point earlier on Tyler, when you mentioned that there are not just legacy bands but there are legacy genres as well and jason and i have talked to death about i old school death metal for instance but you do get that with uh, pizza Frash and like old school black metal and and black and thrash or the you know heavy metal revival or ironically the revival of the new wave of British heavy metal and so on and it is it is something I I don't mind pissing off a few labels if I'm on their mailing list I probably don't won't even notice that I'm on there but whenever I see a promo for a new album that and the promo text says it brings back the glory days of X Y Z I just immediately want to delete it because I'm like I don't want to be sent brand new music that brings back the glory days of 30 plus years ago. I want to hear new music. It's fine if it sounds, if it references this stuff, but unless they explicitly want to celebrate the fact that they are trying something new, they're trying to create their own identity and not just trying to sound exactly like Morbid Visions or trying to sound exactly like Early Slayer, then why are you even bothering? I will just listen to Early Slayer. And... (sighs) It's just the number of promos you receive. If you move in that world and you make a point of trying to discover new music in your spare time and the amount of it that tries to capitalize on revivalism, on retroism, on nostalgia is is almost obscene in a way. But to go back to the point around local scenes as well, it almost feels like the the bigger acts that we're talking about, the ones that have the, you know, the actual pull and can fill out arenas and stuff that almost feels like a completely different world to the underground rock scenes that are happening. Like there's one in where I live in Leeds in Yorkshire as well, that centers around one or two venues. And you've got some really 
interesting kind of death and thrash bands happening. And, you know, we, we sometimes trade bands with London and they'll do a little kind of uh, sharing support slots and so on. And I do love that, but it feels almost like a different world to this Hellfest lineup that I'm looking at to the point where it, it's not even related. I know that the music is roughly the same and it all comes from the same lineage, but it's just, it's not even related to the local gigs that I go to where they're just, one is Disneyland, the other is just my local pub. They're like completely separate experiences. Would you say it's like a, sorry, it's been like 20 years since I read the book, but Brave New World where there's two classes of people. There's one that, you know, lives a very nice lifestyle and constant distractions, but there's this whole other like underworld that goes on beneath that. Would you compare it to like something like that? Um, I think um, I think that's a fair analogy. I don't want to kind of romanticize the local scenes too much because Tyler's right to point out that they do still tr- attempt to engage in the same kind of branding. It's almost like aspirational in a way. And I don't begrudge bands for trying to find a following or trying to tap into something that resonates with people at all. We're all playing the same game here. But they do also feed into like they aspire to become one of these legacy bands. And it almost makes me like question what's what's the purpose of it all. Yeah, like, I've seen it in the local scene here in Texas where you, you blatantly see like bands uh, simulate like sellout aspects of other bands to try to make it. And I can't stand it. And it's something that it's like you want to support the local scene, but you see them, you know, essentially eating shit because of you eat shit long <laughs> enough. If you eat shit long enough, you'll eventually like its taste. So, um, the way I want to end this episode today is kind of discussing. We kind of talked a little bit about it, like what is the future of you know rock, extreme metal, and other extreme forms of music. Um, I just want to kind of end this episode on that topic about possibilities where it can go. I know I mentioned a more communal side, um, where you do kind of just like fuck record labels and just do your own thing and eventually you know create communities around that if enough people did it they would create those own their own communities and they would be splintered you know all these various different communities that might be in conflict with one another but um that is what you know communal is um where you have people with shared values and principles in one area and another area you have really different people different you know values and all that um, and which is kind of why I wanted to bring Keith on the episode today, because I believe that's kind of, you know, like a surface level interpretation of uh, like an anarchist type of system. So I'll start start it with Keith. Like, do you think like a, an anarchist model, um, we spoke a little bit about the Wild West, but just like an anarchist model would be good for music as a whole, like an anti-capitalist business model? Uh, in a word, yes. Um, that's how some of the best music was generated. I mean, I, I mentioned how, you know, a lot of the um, best promoters and, and record labels in the 60s, 70s and 80s were either, you know, organized crime or drug dealers or 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 this was true of rap as well. Or or it was um, the punk labels and the punk labels. A lot of those tended to be more just about we just want to get this music out. It's not about making money or say if we make money great but it's more about promoting the music and a lot of the alternative rock labels were like that like sub pop and, and and some of those you know had a, they started out with that kind of ethos so i think that's it, it really has to be like that because you you have to have people that are that believe in the product i think for you know to, to generate a, a 
quality music scene or, or genre of music. You've got to have uh, uh, people that believe in the product where it's not just about what's going to turn, you know, a profit in the short term by copying, uh, you know, whatever's trendy at the moment. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you, you that ethos, I think, has to be there. Very cool. Uh, Shelly, any thoughts on that? Uh, kind of like what we were talking a little bit about Dungeon Synth being communal, um, but not as uh, geeky and lame as Dungeon Synth. Yeah, with actually good music. Um, I do agree. I'm not going to, I'm going to end on a slightly pithy, maybe controversial point. So apologies for that. But I think stepping away from the economic side of it um, and the kind of the macro, you know, structures that we've we've kind of been discussing and how, how the music industry plays out, I'm going to say that I think we need to end the deification of the rock star as well, because the last 10 years probably more has been dogged by scandal after scandal of oh this rock star they've been alleged to do this like heinous act or this rock star it's it's you know loads of people have come out saying they did something terrible or whatever and that that keeps happening um and when it does we do the usual kind of song and dance of fans trying to like distance themselves from it and the rock stars doing the sort of apology, non-apology, people questioning whether the allegations are true, and none of it's dignified, none of it's pretty. And I think rather than trying, rather investing so much of your personality in who these rock stars are as people, I think we need to step away from that and just realise that, like, I think Ozzy Osbourne's a clown. I, I don't care what he has to say on any particular subject whatsoever. I think he's, he's, he's an old clown that has lived a very colourful, fruitful life, and he has contributed to some music that I find very profound and has really enriched my life, but I do not give a jot about what he's like as a person. And I think people get too invested in some of these personalities and by extension, the brands that we've been discussing to the point where they get deified to the, and it gets very, very unhealthy. And when they do inevitably not live up to those weird expectations that we place on the rock star, people get upset. And all the while, whatever particular crime they've done kind of gets lost in the meat churner of media hype and whatever. And I think if we just remove that and just accept that musicians and people, they're very good at a particular thing and they have a particular skill that we really appreciate, but that doesn't mean that we need to be remotely interested in their opinions on anything, any other aspect of life, or even be that interested in who they are as people. Um, I think if we moved away from that, we would have a much healthier relationship with the music that we enjoy in our lives and maybe would be able to analyze it in a slightly more objective and less at times sycophantic way as well. Uh, so that, that's my two cents. Yeah. The deification of uh, rock stars and metal stars, whatever you want to call it, has definitely granted these legacy bands uh, welcome past their prime, I should say. I mean, I personally do not view any of these bands as being welcome in the, the current zeitgeist of society as a whole because they haven't released good music in decades. Um, even Morbid Angel. I wish Morbid Angel would say, hey, we're retired. We've had our ups and downs and we're done. It's really sad to see Trey you know, still touring and now he's like a drunken mess and he probably has well, yeah. disorder. Like he had to be carried off stage. You shared that video. And that that was, again, another example of like, he's too old to be doing this now. And Morbid Angel are one of the younger bands that we've been discussing. So He's approaching 60, yeah. And But yeah. The, the technicality of the solos that he plays is on, you know, par with like Van Halen. So, 
you know, there's a lot of technicality that goes into playing. If he's doing it while drunk and on a daily basis, it's going to catch up with him. But I, I do, like, especially when you – I've met a lot of personal people that I respected when I was a kid because I came into death metal in, you know, 1995, 1996, when I was still a kid before I had puberty. And I've had the opportunity to meet a lot of these musicians – and when you meet a musician that you really respect, you know, as a musician, but you meet him in person, it's always a fucking letdown. Like, um, I met Attila from Mayhem, and and Attila hung out at my merch table after I played at a festival, and he was just taking morphine pills, and he was incoherent, and he was a really cool guy before he was all doped up. But, you know, really, like, I, I feel like we definitely need to end the, the era of the rock star um not you know I, ozzy osborne's a great example because he had a fucking reality tv show so did G- gene simmons you want to talk about capitalism yeah. and you know trying to stay relevant in the social zeitgeist but yeah I, I think we definitely need to end the rock star and i also think we need to end the record label as well what i think yeah i mean sorry i'll, I'll let you hand over to Sarah in a sec but yeah like i move in like the local music scene here and my local like golf and metal scene and like that that is my world and you know most of my friends are musicians and stuff but it's a really communal feel and we all come at each other as equals and we all respect the music that we we make and stuff but we all realize that like we're just fucking people we're not gods for doing xyz like not to make you feel uncomfortable jason but i i think you're a phenomenal pianist and i listen to goatcraft in my regular listening rotation and i absolutely adore your music but that <laughs> that doesn't mean that i deify you in any way i, I think you're you know, you're just a guy, you're a friend, you're a flawed person, just like the rest of us. And I think that's that's what we need to move away from is like, you're just a person like the rest of us. I really respect you and and like you and I respect you as a musician, but not not this weird kind of godlike thing that we tend to do with, yeah, the, the Van Halens and the Motley Crues and the Ozzy Osbournes of the world. I will say back when I was in my early 20s, I did have a fucking ego because I knew I was better than everyone else. But since then, <laughs> I, I, I've I buried that. Um, but anyway, Tyler, how do you see, like, uh, not like a utopia, the, like a dystopia of music, I should say, which would be a lot of different communal uh, factions um, creating their own thing away from money, because once you commercialize something, you make it digestible for the masses. Therefore, you don't have genuine expression. Um, what do you think about like communal communal societies? You know, no money to be made in the music that they're doing, just kind of rallying behind each other, um, away from record labels and all that. Or do you have a different model that you want to present for the future of music? No, my uh, uh, my thoughts on the future of music are kind of a blend of what you and uh, and uh, Shelley and uh, Keith have had to say. So I do think that moving away from the major record label model and moving away from the rock star model, so to speak, are both necessary. Uh, The problem that I have with the individual communities, or I should say the niche communities that you see today, is that uh, they still stifle creativity. Like talking about Dungeon Synth was a good example to bring up because Dungeon Synth is largely recycling and regurgitating past tropes. And even if they do it in novel ways, those novel ways are just a rearrangement of already existing elements, which can sometimes result in quality art. But it's not creativity on the level of what you saw with 
creating something uh, that without being novel, this is not a superficial uh, change like technique, but like actually stating something creatively, you saw in like early death metal or black metal. And I think that if you want to see that kind of creativity rise again, what's going to need to happen is like the entire abolishment of the music scene structure in general. I think you're going to have to move towards something where artists purely put out music for those who they feel can understand the experience they're trying to communicate, which I think was an ideal of early black metal, um, and don't engage in any traditional means of promotion. Uh, other, you know, you're going to do something where basically, uh, maybe not this radical, but just for the sake of illustrating my point, you are only spreading word of that music by word of mouth. Um, and you, the people who want to go through the effort of finding out where that music are and thus proving their dedication are going to be the ones who show up. And maybe there's some form of loose record label or promotion in the sense of like somebody has enough money to print that musician's work on tapes for the dedicated few who want to have a tape copy. Um, but other than that, there is no, like I said, traditional promotion over YouTube or Facebook or Spotify. If you're aiming to do that, no matter how underground you claim to be, you've already given at least in some level, on some level to the desire to boost your presence, right? Um, which is to me, in today's, you know, there are times I think in history where wanting to boost your presence could be something that was a sincere desire on the part of musicians who were actually creative. I think that we have entered into such creative wasteland with uh, modern music and the way that the internet has changed things that you almost have to be too radical about it to try to restore creativity. You almost have to say, well, you know, maybe that isn't entirely a bad thing, but I'm going to avoid it entirely because I'm dedicated to the mission of reigniting creativity within underground music. Well, the, the best creatives in music have been radicals. Um, they're the ones that, you know, transformed the the medium that they, they were operating in. They moved mountains. You look at Beethoven, you look at Wagner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but uh, anyway, when uh, we wrap up uh, right now, um, Keith, I want to thank you very much for joining on today's episode. Um, Keith is the... Uh, the anarchists, above all other anarchists, he's really uh, ready to always eat his own when he, he sees them conforming to non-anarchist modes of thought. And he's the author of The Failure of Anarchism, the, the guy behind AttackTheSystem.com. Um, Keith, I want to thank you very much for joining today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yes, sir. Had a lot of fun. Shelly, always a great pleasure to have you on. And hopefully uh, your wife keeps the 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 whatever in her oven i'm sorry had a couple beers but hopefully she keeps it in so uh you're you're, you're my spawn is what you're referring to <laughs> yeah the the way you originally told me is like hey i just bought a house it's going to be the breeding grounds and i thought your wife was just going to lay her eggs in the a pond in the backyard and you would go fertilize them but uh um that's turned into a reality so the spawn is coming soon um, but uh, hopefully uh, she keeps it in a little bit longer. That way we can chat next week. Thank you, Shelly, from heatmeditations.com and Metal Legion magazine. Yes, we have been breeding the spawn. No, thank you very much, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, sir. And thank you, Tyler, somewhere in the Mediterranean. And uh, you probably hear that for spotty signal today. Uh, Tyler, always a great pleasure to have you on.
Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, sorry. I should be better for our next episode. All right. Yeah, we'll talk to you next week and barely make out what you're saying. But anyway, thank you for listening and definitely check out attackthesystem.com by uh, Keith Preston here, as well as uh, hatemeditations.com. And subscribe to the YouTube channel of Hate Meditations and uh, definitely ring that bell or click the bell to get the notification or whatever. Cheers, and I hope you all had a good listening experience.